0: My pleasure to introduce Vibhika Strand. She's been a clinical rheumatologist for 35 years and uh, works as a consultant in clinical research and, and regulatory affairs for many pharmaceutical and biotech companies and has been instrumental in bringing uh, several medications uh, to us to use in clinical practice. She's going to be talking on the expanding role of JAK inhibition in Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases. Thank you. I'll let you come on. Awesome.
1: Well, it's, it's good to be here. And this is a very exciting class of therapies. So I want to run through them and I'm specifically just going to mention rheumatoid arthritis because I think what's more interesting is the dermatologic and gastroenterologic and other IMID applications that apply to these. I suspect when we're done with the class and we already have at least four candidates that are likely to, to gain approval, two more than the ones we have, that we're going to see there are more applications for the JAKinibs or the JAK-STAT inhibitors than there even were for the TNF inhibitors. So basically, I think you all understand this JAK-STAT pathway now. Essentially, there are four of them, JAK1, 2, and 3, and TIC 2 and they associate in pairs, and these pairs then uh, will bind and activate the STATs, and the STATs will travel to the nucleus and that will stimulate the secretion of cytokines and growth growth hormones. So as you can see here, uh, tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib, basically the first of them, and they're considered to be slightly less, uh, shall we say, selective, although filgotinib and upadacitinib, which are more JAK1-2s, really behave very much similarly clinically. And so what we really come out with is that there is predominantly a Jack one effect by all of these. Um, but we never know where any one of these is signaling at any given time in whatever cell type. And so we can consider them to be both prolific and promiscuous. And thus, it's, it's interesting class from that point of view. And that's probably why we can see so many broad indications. What we understand is that they do have different in vitro profiles, so some are more selective as I mentioned. But what we see clinically is that they don't appear to be that different from each other. They do modulate distinct cytokine pathways, but we never know, as I already sort of said, is where and when. And also because they have a half-life of about 7 to 12 hours, they're not consistently working over 24 hours. And typically if you withdraw the agent, five half-lives will be close to about five days at the most, and so they will be removed fairly quickly. Some of their effects may persist for a while, but in general their safety profiles characterized by reversibility. It's unclear, as I said, where any of these signals are, are affected at any given time. And that probably is the explanation for why the broad comparisons of safety and efficacy are so similar. So I'm just going to mention rheumatoid arthritis because we know that tofacitinib is approved in Europe and the U.S. And same for baricitinib, Both of them at their low dose and not the higher dose. Uh, upatacitinib has completed five of its six phase three trials. And it's under priority review at the FDA right now for rheumatoid arthritis. And filgotinib, uh, it should say Finch 1, 2, and 3 are all completed. They were just, just announced uh, last week. Psoriatic arthritis, we know tofacitinib is approved. Eupatacitinib uh, has phase 3 trials underway. And similarly, filgotinib announced the Equator phase 2 trial recently was positive, and they're moving forward. And then for spondyloarthropathy, tofacitinib had a positive phase two, a, an adapted design, and they didn't consider it to be sufficiently positive, but they have now been convinced to reopen their clinical development. There's another positive study with filgotinib, the tortuga study phase two. So they're moving forward, and upadacitinib is in a phase two study. And finally, tofacitinib is looking at JIA. Uh, so this is just a, a quick overview of the Equator Phase II trial in PSA patients. So you can see on the left, the ACR 20, 50, and 70 are quite nice. And over on the right, the POSI skin results are quite nice. And this was basically done with their high-dose 200, so it was not conducted in the U.S. because the FDA has concern about preclinical data in terms of testicular function. And finally, you can see here also minimal disease activity, uh, very nicely done, statistically different, and enthesitis also. And essentially the safety profile, very similar to what we know about it in RA. This is now Axial Spa phase two with filgotinib. Again, they use the high dose, so we're looking at the mean change from baseline in the ASTAS, statistically significant as is major improvement in ASTAS, as is clinically significant improvement uh, in ASTAS. When we get down to what's considered to be remission, we see that it's not statistically significant. Three months is a little too short to try to achieve that outcome measurement. The dermatologic indications are really quite large. Atopic dermatitis is one, and we've had several different trials in it with both what's considered to be topical agents as well as systemic agents. So far, none of them are approved, but the data are promising, and we expect something with baricitinib and upadacitinib fairly soon, and probably also tofacitinib. It's not clear that topical will really be used because it's not as effective in terms of covering the whole area that's affected, but ok- oklasit- ok- sorry, is a fantastic drug for canine um, atopic dermatitis where these dogs would be so affected that by the time they were done scratching, they would have no hair. And their fur completely regrows with this agent, and it's really it's dramatic. And then finally, chronic act- actinic dermatitis is being looked at, and alopecia areata. I will show you dramatic pictures. And we've never had anything to treat alopecia areata with. And it, the amazing part of it is the rapidity of the reversibility. And then just to tell you, there's, there's another agent, a topical, that is also under review, a priority review. And there's a combined jak sic inhibitor that's actually being trialed in atopic term. We don't really know whether you need to have a sick on top of a jack, but at least it looks like it's interesting data. So this is uh, some of the dramatic pictures of the atopic derm pre- and post-treatment, and they're looking at the uh, atopic dermatitis uh, severity score, the SCORAD, and that's at 14 weeks, showing very dramatic differences and very dramatic Decreases in pruritus and people being able to sleep through the night, which is obviously an important point As I said the topicals have also been tried And there's also a change from baseline in what's called the eczema area and severity index And that as well as the MD global along with the pruritus are all statistically significant This is you in atopic derm And again, dramatic improvements uh, very quickly by week two and then continued through week 16. And they now have breakthrough therapy designation from the US FDA. Alopecia areata, this I promised you the dramatic pictures. You know, we should still take more pictures as rheumatologists because the dermatology pictures are really very helpful. So this is a retrospective study of 90 patients with alopecia areata. A lot of them had alopecia totalis or universalis. And as you can see, there's there's dramatic improvement, more than 40% scalp hair loss reversibility. And this is based on the severity of alopecia tool, the SALT. Um, As well, in 65 potential responders, a response rate of about 77%. So these are now in in randomized controlled trials. And there was one retrospective trial in 13 adolescents who are probably the most concerned about alopecia areata, as you might understand. And there was very significant improvement. And we'll come back to looking at this when it's associated with an interferonopathy. So other dermatology indications, psoriasis. Big, big indication, big positive indication. Unfortunately, the FDA gave uh, tofacitinib a complete response letter because they were concerned that it was really efficacious at the 10 BID dose, not the 5. At the 10, it was uh, literally uh, above the TANRCEP comparison. Um, and most of us are still very concerned that that happened. Um, The 10-dose has now been approved in ulcerative colitis, but there is a big effort to try to make sure that people don't use the higher dose, and I'll come back to that when we talk about safety. Baricitinib had a positive study there going forward. Uh, Ruxolitinib as a topical. And then finally, BMS has a TIC2 inhibitor, which is a little different because it binds the pseudokinase domain um, that regulates the ATP binding site whereas all the other JAK-STAT inhibitors are actually binding the ATP site. And because of that, the tic 2 is really much more specific to those cytokines in that pathway and not in the other three. So it doesn't share the same broad applicability as the other JAK-STATs. Vitiligo case reports are positive, as you might expect. Erythema multiforme also and actually baricitinib is under review at the FDA, priority review for acute graft versus host disease, which should be really dramatic as well. So if we look at the data in psoriasis, it's very unfortunate because there were two phase three trials as well as two extension trials where essentially there was a long-term extension to look at different dose and the phase three of TOFA 5 or 10 for 24 weeks, and then they had a withdrawal of the responders and retreatment and showed that it's very, very nicely re- regained response. And unfortunately, this product will not be pursued, and so, TOFA, so Pfizer is going through this process of developing what they call disease-specific Jack stats And so they have a disease-specific TIC2-JAC1 for psoriasis. Now, this is all at the same time that Pfizer essentially says, well, the predominant effect of all the JACs, regardless of selectivity, is JAC1 with a little bit of JAC2. So it's interesting that that they do think there there are some differences, but these are in vitro profile differences. And then uh, phase two was very positive with baricitinib. They were looking at 8 and 10. Understanding that that is approved only at 2 and that the FDA is unlikely to approve it at 4, although they're going back and reexamining the data, um, it will be interesting to see where, where baricitinib goes in terms of psoriasis. And as I said to you, ruxolitinib is effective. It, it's got some very nice studies that show how, how well it works. So this is the barisintinib Phase 2, and I just wanted to show you there's the ACR responses and then below the POSI responses. And uh, the primary was a POSI 75 at 12 weeks and really very, very well thought of. Um, and I actually didn't mean to tell you that was an ACR response. I meant to tell you it was a POSI, and below it was the MD Global. So. There's, there was similar results, but the higher doses were far more effective, as you can see, at least up to 12 weeks. After that, there was uh, some loss of response in one dose and definite persistence of difference in response. Ruxolitinib, as I said to you, shows some very nice biologic effects, and it you can see here, the pictures are quite dramatic. So what we understand about it is that it, it improves the leash scores, it reduces the dermal hyperplasia and inflammation, and it's associated with plasma concentrations of the drug and clearly show decreased markers of both IL-17 and dendritic cell activation. So this is the tic 2 inhibitor, and as you can see in the picture, basically on the left, you're seeing where it binds in the regulatory domain which is the pseudo domain, and on the other side is the active domain, the ATP binding site, where all the other JAK stats that we know about bind. So that is a bit of a difference. Um, Here are some of the results in the first phase two study. Uh, POSI 75 showed nice effects. The interesting part of this one is at the higher dose, at the 6 BID and the 12 QD, people started to complain of rash. So they're going to have to work on what dose they're selecting because it's interesting I don't think you want to tell a psoriasis patient that they might get a rash even if their psoriasis gets better. So they're also moving forward in IBD and lupus with this agent and of course we're waiting for psoriatic arthritis those trials are about to get underway. This is a a case report from the New England Journal of a refractory sarcoidosis patient. Again, the the findings are very dramatic. She'd had cutaneous sarcoidosis for many, many years and had failed almost every available therapy. And what you can see here, you see the disease on the left-hand side, and then you can see basically the right one next to it is during treatment. Uh, And the same for the next the third and the fourth and what you're looking at down below is the sarcoidosis score and so you can see that it's going up and down it's starting high going down with the drug and then coming back up and then going down when tofacitinib is reinstituted and then finally they they institute it and use it chronically and the score goes to zero and apparently the people who've been following her had never seen This type of response in this patient. Now, I agree that it's just a single case report, but they studied all sorts of points about it. And you know, the score is the Cutaneous Sarcoid Severity and Morphology Instrument, the SAMI. And this is remission. So now you can see on the left, um, before tofacitinib, significant disease, and then you can see on the right, the CD sixty eight. Estat stat 3 have, have gone way down. And then over on the right, you've got the same thing with H&E and CD-568. So clearly documented improvements. And it'll be interesting to see when and if that trial will get started. So if we move on to the gastroenterology indications. They're essentially inflammatory bowel disease. And we have both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now, we usually think that most things that are effective in one will be effective in the other, but we have a problem with the endpoints, Um, both the CDI, which is not the rheumatologic CDI, but the Crohn's disease activity index, and also a problem with whatever is being used in ulcerative colitis, whether it's a Mayo score or another one. And so, of interest, tofacitinib had a phase two study looking at one, five, or fifteen milligrams, and the study failed, even though we would think that it should be uh, effective. Patisinib is already in phase three for Crohn's disease, and filgotinib. I'm going to show you some data. Um, they had the phase two, which was both an induction and maintenance regimen, and then they had their phase three. Um, which is now ongoing. And in, in between, they, they also looked at specifically small bowel Crohn's and specifically fistulizing Crohn's. And of other interest, of course, is that tofacitinib has been approved now for treatment of ulcerative colitis. So one of the things we can certainly wonder about is whether it was the outcome measurements that gave us the disparate results because we usually see such concurrent results. So ulcerative colitis got approved, uh, TOFA approved for 5 and 10 milligrams BID. The agency advisory board, GI advisory board, actually wanted to have the 15 milligram dose approved too. But it had been studied in a small number of patients in phase 3, and the FDA had insisted that they, they discontinue that dose because of presumed toxicity, although none was really observed by that time. And so now the agency has also saddled Pfizer with the job of trying to make sure that no one uses 15 uh, except in ulcerative colitis. And furthermore, no one uses 10 except in ulcerative colitis. However, the PK data for 10 BID is included in the RA and PSA label. So there is an argument, say, that medical practice can dictate a higher dose. We'll come back to thromboembolic events in a minute. So this is the Phil of Crohn's disease study. It's the Fitzroy study of induction and maintenance. And again, this is the high dose, so it wasn't conducted in the United States. And what you can see here is essentially very nice CDI remission of less than 150, and then also patient global of IBDQ, which is essentially a measure of health-related quality of life in inflammatory bowel disease. And the safety was acceptable. We'll come back to that. Some of the other autoimmune indications are really very interesting. So auto-inflammatory disease. So baricitinib has had an open... Um, profile compassionate use protocol that's been used broadly at NIH and now may be going to some other centers. Dramatic results in patients who tend to have interferon alpha interferonopathies including candle savvy and sting. I'll show you some pictures. Systemic lupus. Well essentially tofacitinib is being looked at uh, in RCTs but I believe now Pfizer's moved on to what they again call disease-specific JAK inhibitors, and I don't even know which JAKs they've selected. Um, baricitinib just finished a Phase two study, which was positive, and I'll show you that. And then finally, filgotinib has a series of trials, in membranous nephropathy and active cutaneous lupus, and we'll see how those work. Sjogren's syndrome, There's been improvement in signs and symptoms by case reports, and then there's also a study that filgotinib is, is in it versus a sick inhibitor from GSK or pirabrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor. I'm not quite sure why they want to do this, but I think they're trying to make drug development more efficient and try to see if these other comparators will show differences that will move the field forward. It's not clear to me that the SICK inhibitor has been effective in any of its earlier trials, and so combining it with a JAK may not be useful. Then dermatomyositis. There are several case reports of refractory dermatomyositis with both tofacitinib and ruxolitinib. Giant cell arteritis, uh, upatacitinib is in trials, and baricitinib has just Finished a phase one open label. and It may well be a really nice therapy for this group of patients. Early diffuse systemic sclerosis being looked at. Most of these phase ones are investigator initiated with the idea that hopefully if they're positive, um, the sponsor will go forward with a phase two. And finally, active non-infectious uveitis. So all these convenient oral therapies could really make a big difference in these diseases. So this is uh, autoinflammatory interferonopathies, and this is the baricitinib expansion program. So CANDLE, uh, as we know it as, atypical neutrophilic dermatosis with li- lipodystrophy and elevated temperatures, and Savvy, the stimulator of the interferon gene signatures, so that's STING, also associated vasculopathy. And basically, as you can see here, some dramatic pictures before and after. So basically the medium daily symptom score decreased and statistically significantly. And in 14, we had almost all of them responding, but certainly 10 of them had statistically significant responses with actual uh, attainment of remission. So you can see that they look and they are clearly growing. They've gotten taller. They've gotten more mature. And many of their deformities have have resolved. That can be resolved. And here you can see the girl on the left um, now growing considerably. So this is very exciting because you know we never had an effective therapy for these auto-inflammatory diseases. And then this is the baricitinib systemic lupus study. So basically 314 patients, they were studied at baricitinib 2 or 4 versus placebo, and basically they did not use the SRI-4, the systemic lupus responder index of a four-point change, but instead looking at primary resolution of the SLEET-I2K in arthritis and rash. This has been a popular idea we we'll just look at organ-specific manifestations, but to me that doesn't make very much sense since lupus either gets better or, or it gets worse. There's not one organ system that get, get, improves to the absence of another. The only exception being is if they have started to develop the, the interstitial fibrosis in the kidney due to CCP positive antibodies, then that is going to be a slowly progressive manifestation, but it's not really the immune complex disease that lupus causes in renal, and it's a manifestation, the long-term manifestation of having had healed glomerulonephritis. But as you can see here, this is the four milligram at the top, and the two in blue, and placebo. So there were positive responses, significant differences, but the secondary endpoints, none of them were positive. And finally, uh, there was at least one case of zoster, and there was one case of a DVT. So when we get to safety, we'll go through that whole picture. This is uh, open-label pilots in refractory dermatomyositis, a single-center proof-of-concept in 10 subjects. They were given the higher dose of tofacitinib, and basically, the IMAX 20% improvement, which is an inflammatory uh, myositis outcome measurement, was actually improved in three out of six. And in at least two, the, the, the criteria are five, and they got either improvement in three and no no worsening in two. And then the cutaneous dermatitis, disease activity and severity score, the C-DASI, was was a secondary endpoint which demonstrated steroid sparing. And so this is uh, nine of the nine in that series at the top here, showing their C-DASI activity going down over time. And this was just presented at ACR in the fall. Um, overall, it seems to be a very good response rate, but obviously open label trials are always positive. So... We'll have to wait to see, but we believe that people are now going to be doing a trial. And uh, also with ruxolitinib, there's been a a positive response in four refractory patients. So essentially, this is a reversibility of the interferon alpha-induced muscle injury, and we know that interferon pathway, particularly the alpha pathway, but also the gamma pathway in atopic derm and so on, are very much altered by these agents. So, we come to the safety, which is, uh, shall we say, the double-edged sword of the JAK-STAT inhibitors, Um, based primarily on extensive clinical daily development data in RA, is generally similar across the agents. You really can't see much in the way of differences between TOFA, Berry, and ruxolitinib, or eupatacitinib, with the exception of the DVT-PEs that were seen in the first three months of the baricitinib 4-milligram dose group versus placebo where there were none and 2-milligram where there were none. Now, was that just bad luck? And the answer is it's hard to know, but we do know that almost all the patients who had DVTs or PEs had previously had one, and so they were at much higher risk of having a subsequent one. Uh, we didn't see any of these in the tofacitinib program through 25,000 patient years of exposure in the long-term extension trials. Until the cardiovascular study, which was recently announced, and I'll come back to that, we saw them with upadacitinib in the phase two studies, and it looked to be in excess with upadacitinib. However, in the phase three trials, we actually see uh, several in the adalimumab. Uh, arm, in fact, three versus two with uh, hepatocytinib and one with placebo methotrexate. So it's very hard to say whether these are drug-related or are they patient population-related, which is what many of us who treat rheumatoid arthritis think they are given the increased incidence of cardiovascular disease in all of these arthritities. So that's a concern, the FDA has had a major concern about serious infections since tofacitinib was first approved. That and malignancies was the reason that they wouldn't approve the 10-BID uh, dose. Um, interestingly enough, that was because when it went to panel meeting, there hadn't been enough extension data with a 5-milligram BID dose. And so we saw more events um, but broader confidence intervals with the 10-dose. Subsequently, now that there's equal amount of data in the long-term extension, 5 and 10 do not look different in terms of serious infections or malignancy. They only look different in terms of a higher incidence of herpes zoster. So that, that's now been abrogated. However, there was also a Phase two study in transplant, renal transplant, and there they saw lymphoproliferative disorders particularly because patients were getting much higher doses of tofacitinib and those were being superimposed on multiple immunosuppressives as per transplant. And so that kind of muddies the water. So far, there's not been any um, lymphoma or lymphoproliferative disease reported with TOFA subsequent to that. They all elevate HDL and LDL, but these appear a lot... To be like what we see with tocilizumab. Um, the JAKSTATs are not necessarily IL 6 inhibitors, but they, can, they definitely can inhibit that pathway. So it's an atherogenic uh, lipid profile. But there doesn't appear to be an increased incidence of MACES. And actually, so far in the tofacitinib cardiovascular study, um, there have not been an incidence, increased incidence of MACES. And I'll come back to that. GI perforations appear to be more common than with the TNF inhibitors, but less common than with tocilizumab. And when you look at the serious infections with tocilizumab, tofacitinib, sorry, compared to the TNFs, it's generally a smaller incidence, lower incidence. So the real issue is herpes zoster, and the herpes zoster is almost always what we might call benign, so that it doesn't go to two dermatomes or, or involve uh, the ophthalmic nerve. But there are a certain number of cases in every one of these databases with every one of these agents. So there does appear to be a higher incidence associated with these, particularly evident in Japan and Korea, and I'll show you that in a minute. The hematologic changes are interesting. Um, some agents, like upatacitinib and baricitinib, can decrease hemoglobin at high level, high doses, but usually they still remain within the normal range. Um, lymphocytes may go up or down, NK cells may come up. Um, other lymphocyte patterns may go down. It's, it's dependent on the agent. Some agents will affect PMNs. Um, basically, baricentinib will affect platelet counts in the first 30 days of use. But platelet count... Changes and platelet size changes have never been linked to be a cause for thromboembolic disease. So that's not been a plausible explanation. LFT elevations are common with all of them, although some have more LFT elevations um, with both monotherapy and methotrexate, whereas others, such as TOFA, predominantly show them only when it's used with background methotrexate or laflunamide. Um, so that's, that's interesting. And as we know, tosalizumab has pretty much been shown not to be associated with an atherogenic clinical profile based on the cardiovascular safety study. So it was the firm hope that the to- tofacitinib study would show similar data. We don't know yet. Finally, CPK and serum creatinine do increase. It appears to be an idiosyncratic Jack effect. We don't know the reason for it. So if we just look at the safety profiles here, the phase three database is over on the left for both tofacitinib and baricitinib, and if you simply just look at the thromboembolic events, you can see that there seems to be quite a difference. And over on the right is filgotinib, just phase two, and upadacitinib, just phase two, and there you can see that there's quite a difference. So that's really the biggest differentiator of all these adverse events of interest among these agents. And we look at the risk of thromboembolic disease in RA, we can see that it's increased, um, DVT and pulmonary emboli. So again, it's hard to understand what's the risk for the underlying population versus the agent. This was the recent announcement, the post-approval cardiovascular safety trial enrolled patients over 50 years of age with at least one cardiovascular risk factor, and it was TOFA-5 plus methotrexate versus TOFA-10 plus methotrexate um, versus a TNF inhibitor plus methotrexate, either adalimumab or etanercept, depending on whether it was US or XUS. And the uh, DSMB announced on February 26th that Patients treated with tofacitinib 10-BID had statistically and clinically important difference in the occurrence of PE. And it was a five-time increase versus the people who were getting the TNF plus methotrexate. And there was also an overall increase in mortality. Now, that was all we knew, and they recommended that everyone dose-reduced to 5 milligrams and the analyses were ongoing. Now... The plan had been to continue the study it 's open label but but to continue it so that people wouldn 't be concerned and simply dose reduce but what happened unfortunately is that uh, the EMA announced how many DBTPEs there were five versus none, and so that has already put the study at risk, and they also announced the number of deaths now this is interesting because all of that, there's an administrative claims database uh, use, um, study by Dan Solomon and colleagues and new users between 2012, when TOFA was first approved, in 2016. And they, they did very nice propensity scores based on fine stratification, multiple different 60 confounding variables. And there they found that the event rate was low, just as we saw in the long-term extension, 20,000 patient years, and essentially not statistically significantly different from TNF inhibitors. So again, we don't know the mechanism. We don't have a plausible mechanism for this. Is it it the drug or is it the underlying disease? And the risk factors in this population are obviously increased. So this is just showing you herpes zoster in RA. associated with any dose of oral glucocorticoids and DMARDS, and similarly in the U.K., and about five times as high in Japan and Korea, probably related to GWAS differences. Here you can see that tofacitinib has an increased risk. We see it with baricitinib, and we haven't seen it with our other biologics in RA. And this is herpes zoster with baricitinib, showing the similar differences. So again, some association with glucocorticoid doses, definite association with use in Japan and Korea. But they all resolve by and large without sequelae. There are very few that have serious sequelae. And then this is just the mean changes in the laboratory parameters, which you are being asked to monitor. And as you can see, there are some differences, but these are overall fairly small. As I mentioned to you, you get decreased hemoglobin levels with berry and eupatocytinib and then the other differences are some effects on the on the platelets. So basically I think that these are effective. They're exciting. Lots of different indications are possible. We've learned a lot about them. In RA we can argue that combo therapy is more is, is superior to just um, adalimumab plus methotrexate with baricitinib, with tofacitinib was non-inferior. In PSA, we can say that tofa plus methotrexate is comparable to adalimumab plus methotrexate, but it hasn't been studied as monotherapy. It was studied as monotherapy in psoriasis, and it was very clear TOFA was was non-inferior. And despite these different selectivities, we see all these things with all these agents. And so it's difficult to really know, understanding their mechanism as being hard to, uh, hard to know at any given time in vivo that they would have such similar profiles. So thank you.
0: Any questions?
1: It's a good idea to vaccinate before you start. Now that we have Shingris, if you can get it, you can vaccinate after you've started.
0: Yak has been around, Sydney has been around for quite some time, but compared to biologics, it's not that widely used. IBDs, for example, And why is that? Do you think uh, there will be a uh, further pickup in terms of using this compound for autoimmune disease?
1: Well, I need to ask a gastroenterologist or an IBD specialist.
0: I think we will start to see a, a pickup of yeah. the use, potentially. I think right now it's, it's really trying to weigh the, the benefits and, and the risks. And you know, the induction at 10 mgs twice a day, and then my guess is once they're in the maintenance phase, we're gonna try to back off to five twice a day, and if they do great, fantastic, if not, then you gotta weigh the risks and benefits of long-term 20 uh, milligrams twice a day. It, it, the, I think the
1: other point is that there was, there was actually significant off-label use before it was ever approved. Yes. So clearly there's a need for an oral agent, but um, I think you're right. We have to see. Thank you for your presentation. How often do you monitor their labs? Every three months? Every six months? Well, we do it the way we usually do methotrexate. So we'll probably do, you know, we do baseline for sure, and then we'll probably see them in a month to make sure they're doing okay and do it again. And then once everything stabilizes, it's every three months. Yeah. Would you like to comment on uh, why we tend why there may be a signal of uh, thromboembolic disease with some JAK inhibitors, but maybe not with others? Signal for uh, for uh, DVTs, DVTs? And pulmonary embolus. Well, I think what I was hoping to convince you of is that we've actually seen DVTs with all of them now. We have also with filgotinib in the FINCH one, two, and three phase three studies. So we have, we have definitely seen them, but they're not very common. And do you have any comment as to uh, potential mechanism as to why these may be occurring with this mechanism? Well, I, I think it's more a disease-specific manifestation of what we see in RA, but we also know that there's an increased incidence of them in PSA, and we don't know of an increased incidence in IBD, so everybody's going to be very interested to see what happens over time.
0: And we know our patients, particularly with active inflammatory bowel disease, are at a baseline risk of elevated DBTs, so certainly some concern there.